Sephora stores are everywhere you are. So just pop in when you need a brown lip to match your 90s playlist, a confidence boost before your interview, or a last-minute gift for mom's birthday. There's always a Sephora near you. Just pop in. Use our store locator to find your local Sephora or Sephora at Kohl's. The art world is constantly changing, so we are very lucky that we have a great new website called Art and Object that can keep us up to date. Recently, I loved an article on Art and Object that was about the best impressionist painter you've never heard of, Marie Brockmond who, of course, is a fantastic artist. So find out more about Marie Brockmond and find Art and Object on the web at www.artandobject.com. That's www.artandobject.com. This episode contains descriptions that might be disturbing to some listeners, so please use discretion. I'll be the first to admit that I was always that person sitting in my art history lecture courses who perked up a little bit when something a little strange or gruesome appeared on the screen in front of me. After all, so much of the greatest hits of art history are all about beauty. Think about the perfection of Hellenistic Greek sculpture, or of Botticelli's lithe and gorgeous Venus, or the sun-dappled flowers of any number of Impressionist paintings. So when we come to see something that's graphic, or ugly, or disturbing, it's a surprise. And I love a good surprise especially when there's a tinge of darkness to it. So it makes sense that I would be intrigued by a Spanish painter known for his no-holds-barred imagery of the horrors of war, the violence we inflict on each other, and the madness lurking inside all of us. But one of his paintings has always been a little too much, even for me to stomach. Some people think that visual art is dry, boring, lifeless. But the stories behind those paintings, sculptures, drawings, and photographs are weirder, crazier, or more fun than you can imagine. Today, we are continuing our season of episodes dissecting single works of art that shook their contemporary worlds, covering another painting that causes waves, even today. In this episode, we are looking at Francisco Goya's terrifying painting, Saturn Devouring His Sons. This is the Art Curious Podcast, exploring the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history. I'm Jennifer Dassel. Francisco José de Goya y Lucientes, who I will simply refer to as Goya, was born on March 30, 1746, in the small town of Fuendetoto, Spain, near the city of Zaragoza. Like many artists, he apprenticed into the position of painter, working with a relatively unimportant artist named José Luzán for about four years before opting to strike out on his own in his 20s, bent and determined to establish a career as a professional painter. And for the first couple of decades, things were a bit slow going. He had mostly minor successes in exhibitions and competitions, traveled to Italy to study art, and then working to hone his craft. He lucked out with a familial connection when he married Josefa Bayou in 1773, whose own brother was one of the top artists of the Spanish court. With his brother-in-law's help, he got his first big break as a designer, or cartoonist, 
at the Royal Tapestry Factory, producing many prints and drawings at the time and garnering the attention of the royal court as well as many other important collectors. He was unanimously elected to the Academia of Art in Madrid in May 1780, and he was appointed deputy director of the Academia in March 1785. And then he really hit the big time when, in 1786, King Charles III appointed Goya the official court painter to the king. Shortly after his coronation in 1789, Charles IV made him court painter as well. All in all, slow and steady won the race here, and by his mid-40s, he was reaping the benefits of all of his hard work. But a twist of fate altered his life and his art permanently. In late 1792, Goya contracted a strange illness, and even today, no one is quite sure what afflicted him, but it was bad, really bad. And not only did it leave him basically incapacitated for practically a year, but it also left him deaf. It was a huge blow to Goya, and it was a wake-up call that made him stand back and truly reevaluate his life goals. Was his art enough? Was he reaching viewers the way he wanted to? And what was his message? It's at this point that much, but not all, of Goya's work transitions away from staid portraits and more light-hearted scenes to powerful social commentary, first in the sarcastic and sometimes humorous images of his caprichos, an 80-print set from the late 1790s, but later in his startling series, The Disasters of War, which chronicled the fearsome realities of battle. We discussed this set of prints briefly in the first episode of our second season, so if you'd like a deeper dive into Goya's disasters, go back and listen to episode number 21. This focus on commentary, this biting, scathing takedowns of everyone from the Spanish monarchy to Napoleon's army, and on and on. These became a central point of Goya's works, and one that would influence the work of art that we are discussing today. Throughout the first two decades of the 19th century, Goya carried on, was once again named the highest court painter in the land by the Spanish monarchy, and created many paintings and prints. But in 1819, his life screeched to a halt again due to that same mysterious illness that caused so much turmoil throughout 1792 and 93. It reared its ugly head again and was so severe that this time Goya nearly died. Once again, the trauma of this experience caused a significant change in Goya's artistic output. It inspired the creation of the Black Paintings. In the same year that Goya experienced the relapse of his illness, he moved into a new house, a little country home on the outskirts of Madrid with a nickname of the Quinta del Sordo, or the House of the Deaf Man. The funny thing is that the house had gained its nickname prior to Goya's residency there, but the irony of the situation would not have gone unnoticed. Here he was, in this new house that inadvertently confirmed that his world was reduced to silence, and he was faced with his own mortality. He was 73 years old, and things were looking grim. So he did one of the only things he could think to do. He grabbed his paints and turned to the walls of his own home to express his feelings of frustration. And out of this, the black paintings were born. 14 murals, most likely created during the years of 1820 through 1823, all meant for private display solely in Goya's home, most displaying a forbidding mood and his continuing sense of anxiety and malevolence. There's an abandoned dog looking forlornly into space, leering women with frightening grins, even an Old Testament Judith beheading Holofernes, a great throwback to our previous episode on Artemisia Gentileschi this season. 
but the work that is by far the most famous of these black paintings. That's coming up next, right after this break. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As listeners to the show, I know that you love diving deep into fascinating topics as much as I do. So that is why I really want you to try The Great Courses Plus. The Great Courses Plus allows for unlimited access to explore anything about everything, and you get to learn from the leading professors and experts in their fields. There are thousands of lectures to stream in virtually every topic you can imagine. There's arts and literature, history, science, you can even learn a new language or learn something like how to draw or how to take better pictures. The best news is that you can watch or listen anytime you want with the Great Courses Plus app. Right now, there's a wonderful course that's up on the Great Courses that I have really been enjoying. It's called Museum Masterpieces The Louvre. And in this class, art critic and art historian Richard Bertel offers these fascinating insights. Like, I love hearing more about Caravaggio's masterpiece, The Death of the Virgin at the Louvre. Because it has this great backstory, it was commissioned for the Roman Church of Santa Maria della Scala a Trastevere, but the church rejected it because they discovered that the model for Mary was identified as a prostitute. So for more fascinating insights in classes like Museum Masterpieces the Louvre, I know that you are going to want to jump on The Great Courses Plus right now. And for a limited time only, my listeners will get their first month for free. But to be able to get this special offer, you have to sign up through my own special URL. So start your free month now. Sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash art. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash art. If you're a regular listener to Art Curious, then you've heard me thank our production partner, Kabunki, for making each of our episodes sound so incredible. They've been with us since the beginning, and now they're here for you too. Need production and editing help for your own podcast? Sure. Full-service video for your film or marketing project? You bet. How about original content for your website or campaign? No sweat. Kabuki does it all for video, audio, or whatever your medium. Their award-winning team has the tools and talent to elevate everything you do. Get to know our friends at Kabuki like we do and tell them our curious sent you. Visit kabuki.com. That's K-A-B-O-O-N-K-I.com. Kabuki, a silly name, but superb content. Welcome back to Art Curious. Let's be real here. Goya's Saturn devouring his son is a sight to behold, and it's not a pleasant one at that. It's truly terrifying. From a dark and shadowy background, a giant and pale man, gaunt and nude, emerges. 
His hair and beard are long, gray, and matted, and his eyes are wide and bulging as they look straight out towards us, the viewers. Now, that is striking and awful enough, but what the man is doing here is even worse. He is shown in the process of consuming the right arm of a human being. In comparison to the monstrous figure, his mouth a gaping black hole, the person positioned within the giant hands is small, like a doll. And that doll has been decapitated and its left arm has been utterly removed, limp and defeated. Blood frames the human's torso and it spills down towards the man's giant fists. And the giant, gruesome figure is more monster than man himself, with a strange frame that is at once overly muscular and too thin, so it's certainly very ill-proportioned. His legs seem too long, evident as the figure attempts to crouch and only from its knees upward is visible. It is unclear how long his legs would be if he were standing up straight, and his feet are completely hidden by blackness. Like I said, truly awful. So what is happening here? Well, the accepted theory is that Goya is looking back to ancient Greco-Roman myth and opted to depict the story of Saturn, also known as the Greek Titan Kronos, whose loss of power and downfall had been foretold to be at the hands of his children. In order to protect himself from this prophecy, Saturn, who had overthrown his own father, had swallowed each of his first two children immediately after their births. But Saturn's wife, Ops, was not going to be fooled a third time. She hid her third baby, Jupiter, on the island of Crete and deceived Saturn by pretending a stone was her newborn baby. Kept safe and secure, Jupiter grew to adulthood until he, as was prophesized, returned to overthrow Saturn and to take his place as king of the gods. Here, Goya zooms in on the most despicable part of the ancient myth, focusing not on Jupiter's victory, but on Saturn's depraved and grave decision to destroy his own child. Or at least that's been the going assumption. In reality, this painting was never named during Goya's lifetime, and it was only after the painting was discovered after Goya's death that art historians bestowed it with the moniker of Saturn devouring his son. There are a lot of assumptions about this painting that, frankly, cannot be substantiated because Goya didn't save any information about it. He was never planning to exhibit the painting, choosing to paint it on the walls of his own home instead of on panel or on canvas for public display. So why would he save any notes or sketches or references, really? Which begs us to ask, since we don't know anything really specific to go on here, how can we even be sure that this is supposed to be a scene of Saturn and his son, and not just some terrible, monstrous scene? Unlike other art historical depictions of Saturn, or of any other mythological figure, really, this depiction lacks any sense of identifying iconology. For example, Saturn is usually shown with a scythe, that curved long tool typically used for cutting grass or wheat. This defined Saturn's typical role as a Roman god of agriculture, claimed as the figure who would represent Rome as a fertile land before his death and the fall of the Titans. In Goya's painting, though, the figure assumed to be Saturn does not have a scythe, and in fact, he really has nothing. The only possible identifier is that mangled body in his fists. And even still, the human he holds leaves some things in question. If we take the title of the painting, Saturn Devouring His Son, as fact, then we also assume that the figure is eating a male. In reality, there are no identifying features to give us any information about the gender of this figure. And in fact, some art historians believe that it might be a female body upon which Saturn is chewing, 
because the corpse's hips and rear end are thought to be too rounded, too curvy, to be a man's body. Say all of that is true. If this isn't an image of Saturn devouring his son, then what is going on in this painting? What does it really mean? Naturally, a first really good guess is the dark state of mind that may have plagued Goya, given his health situation. The overarching themes of the black paintings do seem to tie together with anxieties about aging, dying, illness, madness, and grief. Perhaps this painting is no different, literally making death and the monstrousness inside all of us its subject matter. Knowing Goya's penchant for social commentary makes another interesting variation on this point, because many add the complicating element of Goya's reaction to civil unrest in Spain during this time period. He was outspoken about war and the misuse of power, as we mentioned earlier, and he was known for painting violent images of political riots, including his iconic The Third of May, 1808. During his tenure at the Quinta del Sordo, political rebellions were common, as were violent counter-reactions from the state. Is it possible that Goya is using the bare bones of the myth of Saturn as an allegory for the country of Spain devouring its citizens during this turbulent time? We may never know. After Goya left the Quinta del Sordo to emigrate to Bordeaux, France, he lived away from Spain, for the most part, until his death in April 1828. At his death, the Quinto del Sordo was still in the possession of the Goya family, having been left to his grandson, Mariano. Eventually, the villa came into the possession of a Belgian baron named Emile Delanger, and the baron, along with curators and conservators at the Museo del Prado in Madrid, spearheaded an effort to preserve the murals. By the time the preservation efforts began, though, the black paintings had already been on the walls for more than 70 years, and time had taken its toll on the images, and things sadly got a little worse during and after the delicate process of removing the murals and placing them onto canvas backings. Because of this, the paintings required an intense restoration project that led to some of the detail being lost. Saturn Devouring His Son survived better than many of the other paintings from the series, thankfully, and today it is still one of the great attractions of the Prado, still shocking and disturbing millions of visitors per year. But all of it does allow us to ask, what does it mean to have a work on view that was never made for public consumption? How would Goya himself feel about these works being available for all to see, when he made it most probably just for his own eyes? Does that change the meaning of the black paintings? Or would Goya have painted these works differently had he known that they would be a centerpiece of a huge international collection a century later? I don't know. But in the meantime, I am still going to look, to view Goya's frightening scenes, to experience them in all their horror. Because sometimes art is like a car crash. You know you shouldn't look, but you just can't help it. Next time on the Art Curious Podcast, we're returning to that great Renaissance man, Michelangelo, and a serious Sistine snafu. That's coming up in two weeks. Don't miss it. Thank you for listening to the Art Curious Podcast. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by me, Jennifer Dassel, with additional writing and research help by Kelsey Breen. Our theme music is by Alex Davis at alexdavismusic.com. Our logo is by Dave Rainey at daverainydesign.com. 
and social media help is by Emily Crockett. Our production and editorial services are provided by Kabunki. Video, content, ideas. Learn more at kabonki.com. The Art Curious Podcast is primarily sponsored by Anchorlight. Anchorlight is a creative space founded with the intent of fostering artists, designers, and craftspeople at varying stages of their development. Home to artist studios, residency opportunities, and exhibition space, Anchorlight encourages mentorship and the cross-pollination of skills among creatives in the triangle. Please visit anchorlightraleigh.com. The Art Curious Podcast is also fiscally sponsored by VAE Raleigh, a 501c3 nonprofit creativity incubator. This means that you can donate to our show and it is fully tax deductible. So follow the donate links on our website for more details, where you can also find images, information, contact details, and links to our previous episodes. That site is artcuriouspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter and Instagram at artcuriouspod. Lastly, if you love Art Curious and want even more of what we do, you'll be excited to know that I am available for lectures, live podcast events, and other gigs. So contact me if you would like me to visit your museum, college, university, or elsewhere. Check back in two weeks as we continue to explore the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in the shocking works of art history. Before we end our episode today, I want to talk about another podcast called The Simple Sophisticate. Simple Sophisticate is a podcast inspired by the art of living, and every week Shannon, the creator of the lifestyle blog The Simply Luxurious Life, shares with listeners tips on how to live a refined life on an everyday income. From achieving your goals to preparing a memorable meal, creating a capsule wardrobe, traveling the world, francophones definitely need to tune in as Paris is a favorite destination, and just living life to the fullest without breaking the bank. If you prefer quantity over quality or just love sensible living and want a podcast that will satisfy your curiosity for life's endless questions, you have to check out The Simple Sophisticate on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Simple Sophisticate Podcast. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com.